two of my favorite women in the Old Testament are not well known by name. Now, you might not even know their names, but they're very well known for something they did. These two women are models of compassion, bravery, and self-sacrifice. But above all, these women are models of fearing God, living in the fear of their God. Their names are Shifra and Pua. How many recognize Shifra and Pua? All right, all four of you. Shifra and Pua, you'll remember them now, were Hebrew midwives who lived during the time when Israel was in slavery in Egypt. All that we know about these two women comes from Exodus chapter 1. The Egyptians at this time were worried because the people of Israel, their slaves, uh, were multiplying so rapidly. Um, The slave masters had intensified their cruelty, but even that didn't slow the population growth of these slaves. So the king of Egypt issued a command to Shifra and Pua. He said, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. Now mark, that, mark those two little words. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew strong. And because the midwives feared God, mark those words again, Because they feared God, he gave them families. Two times in six verses, you are told that Shifra and Pua feared God. They feared God and did not submit to the king. And God blessed them for that. And that's what we need to unpack this morning. Because on the surface, Peter seems to be saying something different. He says, Fear God, in verse 17, and submit to the king, verse 13. So which is it? Fear God and submit, or fear God and don't submit, like Shifra and Pua, and what makes the difference? Now, I'm well aware that this issue, this relationship and obligations between Christians and governing authorities is a hot-button topic these days. Even within this body, there are wildly different opinions on the specifics, what it looks like in specific situations to submit to authorities. But I think what you'll find is that the Apostle Peter is perfectly clear on the core principles. First, though, let's get our bearings. Peter is writing, as you all know, to Christian exiles scattered across Asia Minor, In the first chapter, in verses 3 through 12, which we read this morning, Peter proclaims some of the excellencies of the gospel of God's grace. 
the great mercy of God, the cause of your new birth, the living hope you have through the resurrection of Jesus, and the imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance kept in heaven for you. These gospel truths and many others scattered throughout this letter tend, they tend, they're inclined in the life of the believer toward holy gospel behavior, that is, holy thoughts, holy affections of the heart, and holy actions. So in chapter 1, verse 13, Peter shifts and begins to lay out specific gospel behaviors that must define you as exiles. And these gospel behaviors make up a good portion of the rest of this letter. And of course, the backdrop to all of what Peter is saying and teaching here is the imminent return of Christ. The end of all things is at hand, he says, which is to say that your exile is temporary. Your suffering is temporary, and your hope should be fully set upon the grace that is to come at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, before we jump into this week's text, let's take a quick look at what Josh taught us last week. Let me read verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In this morning's text, verses 13 through 17, Peter is going to sustain that focus on the glory of God. The purpose of your good deeds, your honorable conduct among the nations is the glory of your God that the nations might see your good works and glorify God at the return of Christ. So that's where we must begin, the glory of God, the chief and highest end of man. The glory of God is the ultimate end for which God created you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for your glory, whom I formed and made. The glory of God is the ultimate end for which he created you. Further, the glory of God is the ultimate end for which everything exists, not just you. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. So the glory of God is the ultimate end for which He created you. It's the ultimate end for which all things exist. And the glory of God by His command is the ultimate end for every single thing you are to do. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So there can be no question then that the glory of God is your chief and highest end. Therefore, it should be no surprise when Peter says that the glory of God is the reason that you must keep your conduct among the nations honorable. You do that 
so that they might see your good deeds and glorify him on the day of visitation. God's glory is ultimate. And as Peter moves into verse 13, he keeps the glory of God in view as he introduces a new gospel behavior, namely that you are to be subject to every human institution. Now, before I explain what it means to be subject and what these human institutions are, I want to lay the foundation from verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You can see now the connection between what Peter said in the previous section and what he's saying now. He's calling you to honorable conduct among the nations, to doing good. God's ultimate purpose is that the nations see and that He gets the glory. And now Peter introduces a new but subordinate end or purpose. He says, yes, your good deeds are for the glory of God, but they are also meant to put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So here's the foundation. Peter's instruction in this text, and he has two instructions, are for the glory of God and for the silencing of the ignorance of fools. I love what Peter does here. He makes it crystal clear that this is not merely his opinion about the relationship between Christians and authorities. He says explicitly, this is the will of God. Robert Layton, a 17th century Anglican archbishop, says that verse 15 gives you the ground of your duty. The main reason, he says, for submitting to human authority is the interest that divine authority has in it. And that'll be important for us in understanding what it means to be subject. So, it is the will of God. Now, what about this doing good? Peter uses that word four times in this letter. It's the same word Jesus uses in Luke 6 when he says, Love your enemies and do good. Now hear him out. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, because He, that is God, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. It is clear that this good, honorable conduct that Peter has in mind goes far beyond private acts of piety. He's not talking here about doing your morning devos over a cup of coffee. And we know that. We know that's the case because the doing good here is seen. It is seen by society somehow. So there's more to it than just merely these personal acts of piety. So what Peter is saying here aligns nicely with what God said to exiles in Babylon centuries earlier through the prophet Jeremiah. He said that these exiles should seek the welfare of the city 
where I, that is the Lord, have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So, this is the will of God. These instructions from Peter's pen come with divine authority that by doing good, that is good that can be seen by the unbelieving world around you, but done for the glory of God is also meant to put to silence the ignorance of fools. Now, what does that mean? The word ignorant is found only in one other place in the New Testament. It's where Paul uses it to describe those who have no knowledge of God, which means that Ignorance, as Peter is using it, is not about intelligence. It doesn't mean that these people were dumb. As I was studying this, I found a translation that instead of ignorant, used the word nitwitted. These nitwitted people. That's colorful, but it, but it might not be exactly what Peter is saying here. He isn't being derogatory or rude like it would be if I called you ignorant. The word simply means a lack of experience, religious experience in particular. Peter's saying that these people have no experience by which to judge this new religious sect called Christians. So when they slander them, they don't know what they're talking about. They're talking about something they've never experienced. And that is the ignorance that your doing good is meant to silence. And silence means literally to muzzle, to mute. It's the word Paul used when he quoted the Old Testament. You shall not muzzle the ox. It's also the word Matthew used for what Jesus did when he corrected the bad theology of the Sadducees. Matthew says, the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. He shut them up. He muzzled them, which is exactly what you're doing good is meant to do to the ignorance of foolish people. And these foolish people here are unbelievers, those who do not know or are ignorant of or who have rejected Christ. Those are the fools. So, there's the foundation of Peter's instructions. They are for the glory of God ultimately and for the silencing of the ignorance of fools subordinately. Now, it's true. Even when you're meticulous about doing good, there are people who are still going to slander you, but that doesn't change what Peter is saying. He isn't exempting you from slander. That is inevitable as a believer. He's saying that Christians should behave in such a way as to not give an occasion for that slander. So if they are slandered, it will be unjustifiable, and the slanderers will know it, and thus their ignorance will be silenced or muzzled. Now we're ready to take Peter's two instructions head on. So, for the glory of God and for the silencing of the ignorance of fools, Peter says in verse 13, be subject. That's instruction number one. Live in submission. We want to ask four questions about that 
instruction. One, what does it mean to be subject? Two, to whom are you to be subject? Three, for whom must you be subject? And four, to what extent must you be subject? Question number one, what does it mean to submit? You know, we're, we're Americans, we're rugged individualists, and the whole idea of being subject to anyone rubs us the wrong way, doesn't it? I mean, we fought a war over this. Nevertheless, to submit means exactly what it says. Submit means to submit. And if you're looking for a definition that might explain it away, you'll be hard-pressed to do it from the Holy Scriptures. So let me give a definition. I think this is biblical. This is from the Scottish New Testament scholar I. Howard Marshall. He says that submitting literally means placing oneself below another person out of a respect that is expressed in obedience appropriate to the relationship. It may be compulsory or voluntary. And we'll leave that up for a few minutes. Submission involves a recognition of an ordered structure. In this case, we're talking about an ordered structure in society. And Peter uses this word five times in this letter. Here, Christians are to be subject to governing authorities. Elsewhere, slaves are to be subject to their masters. Wives are to be subject to their husbands. Angels and authorities and powers are subjected to Christ. And those who are younger are to be subject to elders. Each of these relationships, these ordered structures, are different. But each involves placing oneself below another person. Each involves a degree of respect that's expressed in obedience, but the obedience depends upon the relationship. And some of these relationships are, are compulsory, forced like slaves and masters, and some are voluntary like wives and husbands. So, if this is what it means to be subject, then question number two, to whom are we to be subject? Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now, that word institution is interesting. It literally means creation. Be subject to every human creation. But in the context, the clearest way of expressing that is every human institution. These are institutions or entities created by humans. They include human governments, businesses, and even families. In fact, those are the very institutions that Peter will address in the coming verses. In our text, though, Peter calls attention to the human institution of government. He says, you're to be subject to the emperor as supreme or governors as sent by him. Those authorities are the human institutions to which you must submit. And while Peter makes it clear that these are human institutions, we also need to acknowledge that they have been instituted by God. 
That's what the Apostle Paul brings to this conversation in his letter to the Romans. He says nearly the same thing as Peter. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Then he adds, for there is no authority except from God. And those who exist, those that exist, have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. That helps us frame this discussion. Humans got together and made a king out of one of their own. But Paul says, on the flip side of that coin, God instituted it. God appointed that king. And we can be certain that God will accomplish his person, his purpose for doing so. He is absolutely sovereign even over the most wicked of kings. They always do his bidding. That was a lesson King Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way. When his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules over the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. As you try to apply Peter's instruction here, you will feel the weight of it. You will see just how difficult this is. We are so politically polarized these days that it is tough to even stomach the idea that, and you can fill in the blank with your least favorite politician, that he or she has been appointed by God. But that is exactly what the Scriptures teach. Now, There's far more that could be said, but let's make this much clear. Peter is including in this statement all government magistrates, all civil authorities, from the highest levels of government to the lowest, from President Biden to Governor Inslee to county and city judges to law enforcement officers on the streets. Those are the ones to whom you must be subject. As John Calvin puts it, This extends to all magistrates, and the meaning is that obedience is due to all who rule, because they have been raised to that honor, not by chance, but by God's providence. And lest you forget, Peter was speaking specifically about the ungodly Roman government to which he was subject He penned these very words at the end of the reign of uh, Emperor Claudius or in the early days of Emperor Nero. This is the tyrannical government that would eventually behead him. John Calvin emphasizes the same thing. Kings and magistrates often abuse their power and exercise tyrannical cruelty rather than justice. Such were almost all the magistrates when this letter was written. The Caesars, who when 
who then reigned, had possessed themselves of the monarchy by tyrannical force. Hence, Peter, as it were, forbids the exiles from using that as an excuse. He shows that subjects ought to obey their rulers without hesitation because rulers are not made eminent unless elevated by the hand of God. Now, question number three. For whom must we be subject to these authorities? I know that sounds like an odd question, but you'll understand why I asked it when we look at verse 13 a little bit closer. Verse 13, you are to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Mark those four words, for the Lord's sake. Your primary allegiance is to Christ. He is your supreme Lord. Your subjection to human authorities is only because He ordered it to be so. But He is supreme. All authority the government officials wield is but a derived authority from the source. They are not the authority. They are not your final authority. They derive their authority from God. Any submission or obedience to them must be an obedience to the Lord. He is the supreme authority. And I've lost my place. You then are to be subject for the sake of, for the reputation of, for the glory of your Lord. Those four little words, for the Lord's sake. They might be the most important words in this verse. God is the supreme Lord and governor of all. Righteousness that is doing good towards man, says John Owen, is but a branch springing from this root. And where this is not, there is no righteousness amongst men, wherever it's pretended. If we give not unto God the things that are God, it will not avail us to give unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, nor unto other men what is their own. So that begs question number four. To what extent, then, must you be subject to these authorities? If God is the supreme Lord, and if your submission is for the sake of Christ, then is it ever right to disobey them? And if so, at what point? Now, as near as I can tell, the church has always found general agreement on the answer to that question. Oh, there are heated debates over all the particulars, especially these days. But I think there's been a general agreement over the years because the answer is straightforward. If God is your supreme authority, you will answer ultimately to Him. You are to be subject for the Lord's sake. Therefore, your submission or obedience to government authorities extends only to what can be done for the sake of the Lord. In other words, your submission extends only to the point at which lesser authorities tell you to sin because you cannot sin for the sake of your Lord. 
You cannot stand before the Lord of the universe and claim that you sinned against him because a lowly emperor told you to. So to what extent must you be subject to the point at which the government authority orders you to sin? To do something God has forbidden or not to do something God has commanded. In those situations, you have a moral obligation to obey your supreme Lord. You must obey God rather than men. And that's exactly the pattern you find throughout the Bible. Remember, it was Peter himself who said those words. We must obey God rather than men. He said that when he and other apostles were arrested and brought before the council, the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man, Jesus' blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. That is the foundational principle. And we must learn how to apply it. You answer to a higher authority, which means you simply cannot comply with any law, any order, any mandate from any authority that would be sin. Shifra and Pua feared God. He was their supreme authority. The king of Egypt ordered them to kill babies, and they refused. And the God they feared blessed them for that. Now, before we move on to the second instruction, let me say a word about verse 14. It plays a very important role in this text. Peter says to be subject to the emperor and to his governors, as governors sent by the emperor to punish those who, are, who do evil and to praise those who do good. So verse 14 gives two broad areas that fall under the responsibility of human governments. They are to punish evildoers and they are to praise good doers. That's their God-given role. Be careful, though. There are some teachers today trying to subtly alter those words into, and Paul's words in Romans 13, into what is essentially a conditional clause, an if-then statement. If the government is punishing evil and praising good, then you are to be subject to it. If it's not, then the government, then that government is no longer legitimate, and therefore Christians must not submit. That's the logic I've been seeing used to explain away what Peter and Paul are clearly saying. The problem is there is no if-then in this verse. And if that was what Peter meant, I seriously doubt that he would have told them to submit, especially given the fact that the Roman government at this time was infam infamously ungodly and unjust. Rather, the legitimacy of the government for the purpose of the Christian at least comes from the fact that God instituted it. Nothing in this text indicates that your submission depends upon 
how well the government is doing its job, except when it mandates that you do what you cannot do for the sake of your Lord. That said, it remains true. The authority of the government is always a derived authority. So when there's a conflict between the government and the source of all authority, Christians obey God rather than men. To help drive that point home, let me quote R.C. Sproul. He said that even if Christians find themselves in the unenviable position of being under the tyranny of an unrighteous and unjust government, they still have a fundamental responsibility to render civil obedience. He calls that principle number one. We should obey the civil magistrates. But principle number two which balances it, is that we must always obey God. If there's a conflict between civil magistrates' commands and what God demands, it is our moral duty to disobey the civil magistrate. Fortunately, those situations, at least in America, do not happen often, but they are becoming more and more frequent. As you know, Living Water Church encountered this about two years ago, and you all know the situation. I'm not trying to trigger anyone. It has to do with COVID. But Governor Inslee issued a mandate um, that, among other things, church gatherings in the state of Washington could not include singing. Well, the reality is that an infinitely higher authority then Governor Inslee determines how worship is to be conducted. And that authority has ordained singing to be a part of worship. So it's an easy decision to politely say, no, Governor Inslee, we must obey God rather than men. So for the glory of God and for the silencing of the ignorance of fools, Live in submission to your governing authorities, but do it for the sake of your Lord. Obey for the sake of your Lord and disobey for the sake of your Lord. And for those same reasons, Peter says, this is his second instruction. Peter says, live in freedom. Verse 16, live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. This second instruction should, should help cement everything we just learned about the extent of our submission to authorities. You are free, brothers and sisters. Your submission to all lesser authorities that is lesser than your supreme master is not to be a servile submission. It is not a slavish submission. You are not slaves to this government. You are free. In what sense? Peter answers that back in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. He says, you were ransomed. You were purchased and set free from the feudal ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Your freedom as believers 
was purchased by the blood of Christ. When you, by faith, receive Christ, you are free from the slavery to sin and to Satan. Free from the law of sin and death. Free from the condemnation of the law. Free from the wrath of God. And you are free from the fear of death. And if the Son has set you free, oh, you will be free indeed. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Did you catch that? Your freedom in Christ is not a freedom to sin. It's a freedom from sin. And all of its judgment against you. Do not submit again to that yoke of slavery. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. That's how Paul said it. God granted you freedom in order that you may serve your new master with all your heart to render honor and submission and obedience to the supreme Lord. You obtained this freedom, says John Calvin, in order that you may more promptly and more readily render obedience to God. For it is no other than a freedom from sin. And domination is taken away from sin that men may become obedient to righteousness. You have a new master. And that's the very heart of your freedom. Therefore, live as a people who are free. Now, Jesus teases out this kind of freedom in a, in a fascinating discussion with his disciples in Matthew 17. Matthew 17, just a few verses there, 24 through 27. And they came to Capernaum. The collectors of the two drachma tax, that's the temple tax, went up to Peter and said, does your, does your teacher not pay the tax? That's a leading question. He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. You're a son. You are free. However, not to give an offense, pay the tax. Submit yourself for the sake of the Lord. No, you are not slaves to emperors or governors. Your submission to those human institutions arises only from your freedom in Christ, which liberates you from the bondage of sin and death and empowers you to be subject to your supreme Lord who says, pay the tax. So how does this look? How does it look to live as people who are free? Peter gives two answers in verse 16. One is negative and one is positive. Negatively, living in freedom means you're not, means not using your freedom as a cover for evil. And you can imagine how tempting it may be for these exiles to rebel against these ungodly Roman authorities. It's especially tempting for us today. 
But if you give in to that, if you use your freedom as an excuse to give vent to your rebellious heart, God is not glorified and it gives ammo to those who would slander Christians. No, Peter says, you answer to a higher authority. He wants you to be subject for the Lord's sake, for the glory of God and for the silencing of the ignorance of those foolish people. So negatively living as the people, of, as people who are free means not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but positively it means living as servants of God. Now that you have been set free from sin, says Paul, you have become slaves of God. As I've already said, your freedom means that you have a new master now. You're slaves of God. He redeemed you by the blood of Christ. He is your Lord, the master and ruler of your life. His will is now your command. Well, Peter ends this section in verse 17 with a summary of sorts of what it means to be slaves of God. How to be slaves of God in relation to human institutions. Four short commands. Verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. These represent the four arenas in which all Christian exiles live. Honor everyone. This is the arena of society. As slaves of God, you must give the appropriate honor to everyone, and there are no exceptions. You must have a due respect for all men, for the poor, for the rich, even for the wicked. If for no other reason, you give a fitting respect to them because they bear the image of God, their fellow image bearers. As slaves of God living in the arena of society, you are to honor everyone. The second arena is the church. Slaves of God love the brotherhood. This is a special relationship that goes well beyond the honor you owe to all image bearers. You are to love your fellow believers. Look around you. This is your family in the deepest and most profound sense of that word. This is your family. These are your fathers and mothers, your brothers and sisters. Paul points to this special relationship when he tells the church in Galatia, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Matthew Henry said that all Christians are a fraternity. They are a brotherhood. They are united to Christ the head, closely related in the same interest, having communion with one another and going to the same home. They should, therefore, love one another with a special affection. The third arena is spiritual. Fear God. This, it seems, is foundational to living as slaves in relation to all human institutions. Shifra and Pua, they feared God and did not do as the king commanded. Their allegiance was to a higher authority. Their fear of God was such 
that it was worth risking their very lives to obey Him rather than the King. John Calvin sees the fear of God as the one thing that undergirds everything Peter has just said. Whoever fears God loves his brethren and the whole human race as he ought, and he will also honor kings. Where there is no fear of God, these other duties cannot be done as they ought. And the fourth and final arena in which Christian exiles live is the arena of government, which brings us full circle. Honor the emperor. Notice he says you are to fear God, not fear the emperor, but you are to honor him. And when you don't, you disobey the supreme Lord and you open the door to slander. But it's God's will that by doing good, by honoring the emperor, you will muzzle the ignorance of unbelievers. Now, one of the questions that I would like for us to discuss this week in our community groups is how do we do this? As I studied for this sermon the past two weeks, the Holy Spirit convicted me if, if you know me at all, uh, you know that I take a certain devious pleasure in mocking President Biden and Vice President Harris. Um, I have not shown them honor. I've not shown them the honor that my Supreme Lord demands of me. I'm convicted about the disdain that I have for Governor Inslee. I honestly don't think that I have said one thing honorable about him the entire time that he has been our governor. This is tough. It's tough when you believe that these men and women are destroying our nation for their own profit. But my Supreme Lord has called me to honor them. Of course, we must speak truthfully about them and their policies and their actions. That's one thing. But to dishonor them, to mock them as a senile old man, or to call them bumbling idiots. That is to sin against your supreme Lord. So if you struggle with this like I do, um, let me encourage you to take one step this week toward honoring them for the sake of the Lord. One step. Start praying for them. Pray for your government officials. Pray for their souls. Men, teach your children to do this. Pray with your children for your government officials. Somehow I am certain they know exactly how you feel about them. <laughs> They've heard you. They've heard you watching the news. Why don't we teach them how to honor? 
That was Paul's instruction to Timothy, and this is how I will close. He said, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. And here's the purpose. Paul gives Timothy the purpose for praying for them, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So, brothers and sisters, for the glory of our God and for the silencing of the ignorance of fools, let us live in submission and let us live in our blood-bought freedom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, these are, these are difficult words. And Father, I, f- I feel the weight of them, and I'm not even sure I understand all of the implications. But Father, we want to honor you. We want to obey you. We recognize that you are supreme, and we owe all of our allegiance to you. So Father, I, I pray that you would help us. Help us to know what it means to be subject to these governing authorities in these days.